We all agree with the common goal, calling out conversion therapy for what it is, a terrible, inhumane, dangerous practice against the LGBTQ community and that needs to be eliminated in Canada. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and that clip you just heard was Conservative MP Eric Duncan speaking in the House of Commons in support of our government's legislation to ban conversion therapy. Eric represents a rural Ontario riding of Stormont, Dundas, South Glengarry. He was first elected to the House in October 2019. He's only in his early 30s, but has already somehow served over a decade in municipal office. And he's also our country's first openly gay conservative member of parliament. While my last conservative guest, Michael Chong, is someone I've had a number of conversations with over the years, this episode with Eric was actually the first time we sat down for a conversation together, partly brought about by his thoughtful remarks on conversion therapy, in which he shared his own coming out story, but focused on both his personal experience as a new conservative MP, and more broadly, what it means for his party to become more modern and inclusive. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Nate. So before we get to issues of greater substance, I first want to know, you are a young member of Parliament. You served somehow as mayor of North Dundas for eight years before becoming a member of Parliament at a very young age. You've also, I think, served as staff to a Conservative member of Parliament. How did you enter politics in the first place, especially at such a young age? My mom and dad say they don't know what went wrong with me. Um, they have, we have a family trucking business that my parents have worked at for years, and they're separated and remarried now, but we're all very close. And it's funny because people always ask my parents, where did Eric get the political bug from? And they say it wasn't them. Um, <laughs> you know, and they, they would have been small C conservatives or big C conservatives. They supported our candidates over the years, would make donations and a lawn sign when the campaign came, but weren't overtly political. So I always just got, I love organizing. I love getting involved. I love public policy. So for me, when I was in middle school and in, in high school, I was involved in students' council, just always in a process of continual improvement, looking at something, could we do better on it? How could we do it differently? And that just extended into uh, into public life. I, I got broken gently. I, I got elected on council in my first, second year of university at the age of 18, and then it became mayor four years later at 22. Um, that our our regional chair at 25. And then I tried to take the Freedom 30 retirement plan uh, and retire, but uh, that didn't work. And an opportunity came at the federal level where my predecessor, Guy Lozon, a conservative MP who I worked for for nine years as well, he retired and it was the right opportunity. And uh, it came up and I've, I've been grateful for the last year. It's been an unusual year to get broken into a new level of uh, of government and politics, but it's been rewarding and I've, I've loved every minute of it. It has been an interesting year, a difficult year, unquestionably. I'm glad you're in the house. And I want to quote, it is okay to be gay. It is okay to be trans. It is right for them to live their lives as who they are and be who they are. Now, those are your words, but I think many Canadians quoted out of context might question whether those words would have been coming out of the mouth of a conservative member of parliament, but you are the first conservative member of parliament to be elected as openly gay. And what has that experience been like? Great. It's been no no different. And I was actually just talking about it earlier today on a, uh, a happy hour drink session with some colleagues and some stakeholders about it. I look at my perspective. I came out in 2017, more recently when I was uh, turning 30 that year, and I had an amazing experience with it. Uh, I came out online when I was mayor of a small town 
downtown, small C conservative town, and uh, lots of churches, a bedroom community to Ottawa. And then a lot of people that have, you know, the rural way of life is the only, you know, only way they've known or place they've lived. And so I was kind of nervous, perhaps a little bit about coming out, but it's something that I wanted to do. And I was overwhelmed in such a good way with the positive support I got in the indifference as well. But I mean that in a good way, like it, it just didn't matter to people. I was mayor for, I think, six or seven years at that point. They got to know me for me. And then um, when I came out as gay, it was okay, uh, now let's deal with the pothole on my street or the council meeting the next night. And so don't care, get back to work, Eric. Exactly, exactly. You know, and and for me too, being, you know, being elected, I I have to tell the story. Sven Robinson, uh, the NDP MP for many years has been been very kind. I remember him coming up to me after I got elected and into Ottawa. I was sitting in the chamber one day pre-COVID and uh, somebody said, Sven Robinson's in the uh, lobby to see you. And I went, wow, okay. So I went out and he said, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations, you're doing such great things. And I'm thinking, this should be the other way around. He was, uh, you know, an MP at a time when coming out and advocating for LGBTQ issues uh, wasn't easy and in many times wasn't safe. And so I look at my circumstance of, uh, yeah, I have challenges certain days. Uh, I'm sure, you know, you do in your own writing of people who are non-supporters and don't agree with you. But uh, I, I have been truly blessed from my coming out experience and then being gay as a member of parliament. I can't complain. It's been wonderful. You gave a, a very powerful speech I think, on the government's legislation to ban conversion therapy. And you told your own story, but you very quickly went on to say, but I know that I'm lucky and that many others have not had similar luck. And you explained in very clear terms why that bill is so important and why conversion therapy is an incredibly cruel practice. How have those conversations gone with caucus colleagues, and it seems like there's movement in the Conservative Party to put some of these issues behind them in a way that they haven't been able to in the past and to move forward on embracing rights. Is that how you see the party going forward? Yeah, I, I do. I, I've been um, very happy with the caucus engagement on it. I obviously don't, like you, don't we don't talk about the different caucus meetings and the discussions on it. But I will say uh, from an analytic perspective, a couple of things. There was the bill that Randall Garrison had, I think, before the 2015 election, a private member's bill dealt with gender identity, trans rights, and uh, it didn't proceed. Your government brought it forward after 2015. And at that time, I think there were only a handful of conservative members that voted in favor of it at second and third reading. I look at this now when we have second reading, everybody wants to get to yes on this. The conversations I've had, people are out asking questions in a very good way. They want to, not everybody knows about every issue. I, I look at it differently. Some members come to me and say, I feel really bad. Can I ask you some questions about this LGBT issue? Absolutely. I said, down, we have a coffee and it's it's good. It's engaging. It's positive. I do the same thing on other issues. Okay. I have a lot of farms in my riding and there's some issues I don't get. So I'll go over to somebody with life experience and agriculture and say, okay, explain this to me. I, I don't get it. That's why, you know, and I said this in my speech about C6 with this conversion therapy bill, we talk about getting more diverse people in our parliament and that's by gender, by sexual orientation, race, religion, life experience. And that's because when these types of issues come up, we can be connected actors for our respective caucuses to give that background and to, and to give that perspective. And I, I was very happy, you know, where, again, we had only about seven that voted no. And it's it, several of them from the conversations I've had is they wanted to see some uh, a reasonable amendment on certain aspects. But I think at the end of the day, the tone is there. People want to get rid of it. It's a terrible practice. 
We don't need conversion therapy. You don't need to be converted if you're gay, if you're transgender, if you're going through gender identity, sexual orientation. You don't need to change who you are. It's a useless, outdated practice. So I'm anxious. I think the bill is going to pass. I'm anxious about the committee process to see how that'll proceed and how we can try to work together and, and bring more people on board. But it, it's one of those ones where I think that diversity and having you know unique life experiences like I've had, never being subject to it, but I think is helpful. And that's good for any party in any caucus. We obviously are both members of big tent parties and we don't get to choose every one of our colleagues. And I don't think we ought to be tagged with everything that our colleagues do. But you have a couple of colleagues who have been more public in their worries about C6. Derek Sloan in particular obviously ran in the leadership and was vocal about it. He has indicated that it's likely to criminalize prayer, which is not true. But he, recently he he said in an email fundraising campaign, it's an insidious ideological approach to gender identity, seeking to raise something like $25,000 or anything. And, you know, obviously you don't wear those words and you don't defend those words in any way. But, you know, how, how do you manage that dynamic in caucus? I look at the vote and I look where the overwhelming majority of caucus is going on this. They want to get to yes. They see they want to ban conversion therapy and they're engaged on the issues. And, you know, the discussions I have focus more on that lens. And that's where the majority of the caucus is. We have free votes, free voices on social issues. I would not want to be whipped against something like, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be in the other way, in the other way shoes. I don't want to be forced into something that I don't want to do. So I appreciate having the opportunity to have a free vote. And obviously mine is to to end this practice and to to send the message to those that are trying to make money off this or profit or to, to engage in conversion therapy, but also the message as well to young, if it's a young gay or lesbian a teenager, if it's somebody struggling with their sexual identity, gender identity, it's being able to go and say, look, our parliament is sending a message. Our government, your elected officials are on your side more than ever before. And again, getting people there where we're getting rid of these stigmas of anybody needing conversion therapy and all these things. So again, I do my own thing. I, I try not to react to other ones, but I, I I can correct the course where need be and say, I don't believe that's the case. I, I obviously don't share some of those views. And I, I'm lucky that I get the platform. I get to go on a liberal member of parliament's podcast to talk about <laughs> my views. It's great, you know, so, um, you know, getting a chance to talk about that. And I, I think, you know, we talk about modernizing our conservative party, being reflective of where the country is today. I've just been very happy with the positive feedback I've got from colleagues across the aisle, from stakeholders in the country, members of our own party to say, this is the type of tone and the type of direction we need to have in order to be competitive, you know, in, in the electorate and, and win more people over. And I want to get to that question of modernizing the party. But very quickly, just to close out the conversation on C6, it's going to go to committee. And I've heard some conservatives say they want to see some amendments. Is the idea behind that thrust to say, we know that conversion therapy, seeking to change someone who is gay, who is transgender, that is wrong. But we also want to make sure that there is space for people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, that they can seek out psychotherapy, and that's okay too. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that could be part of it too. And I think it's the the freedom of expression, freedom of religion aspects, and the the, the private or voluntary conversations that happen with people and getting, you know, as the, as the minister said in his comments just before mine in the House of Commons, for greater clarity. And so I think if we can, you know, there's very good faith and goodwill efforts on our side to say, look, I think we can provide 
provide the greater clarity. And I think from a legal perspective, I am far uh, and very impressed, Nate. I listened to your stuff on C7, which I don't have a legal background, but I'm learning I need to get more and more, or you just get it by experience here. Very well spoken, the legal aspect of where I think if we could put something in along those lines, and literally some of the wording from the from the Justice's uh, Department's website and the minister's comments when we were talking about this, it just gives an assurance. And I think in the end of the day too, it provides that clarity. And I think it'll uh, not log jam some of our courts in terms of challenges or appeals and all those types of things that might happen. I think we can send a big message on it. So uh, I think the amendments you're going to see brought forward, but I'm not on the Justice Committee, are going to be you know very moderate, reasonable changes just to seek that clarification. That's the intent is not to get into those levels of private conversations. And I've had some people say too, you know, those private conversations at times can bother them. Myself being, you know, uh, a proud gay person as well, some of those conversations would bother me perhaps that may be protected. But I think at the end of the day, with the charter and what we have there and giving that clarity where it doesn't want to go, I think it makes it a better bill and builds stronger support. So hopefully we can get there. And on the question of a modern conservative party, in, in the last election, you are running as an openly gay man. Your leader at the time is asked a number of questions in the course of the election, and I wouldn't say has the most forceful defense of of rights as far as it goes. You said, though, I wouldn't be running if I had any inkling whatsoever that I wasn't welcomed or my sexual orientation wasn't welcome in the Conservative Party. And then in the wake of the election, you said, I think we need to work on how we make ourselves a modern Conservative Party, and that includes being more inclusive on that issue. I'm looking forward to playing a role in that and helping shape that a little bit more in the coming months and years. Your speech in support of C6 probably is part of that role that you had in mind. What kind of role do you envision in this regard in the months ahead? I'm actually excited to be on Aaron's leadership team. It's actually I, my, my technical job is the question period coordinator. So when Aaron, uh, who's been a great friend of mine for a few years, asked me to be the question period coordinator, my first response to him was, what did I do wrong to deserve that job? Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I've enjoyed being on the leadership team and, and doing some of that. But part of that job is reaching out to groups and again, and making those personal connections. So when I'm in Toronto meeting with LGBT organizations and talking, not just about conversion therapy, but ending the blood ban. And that to me is the single biggest, easiest, quickest thing we can do. And that's a policy priority for myself and, and going forward in the coming months. And, and again, it is, it's educating, it's letting people know where again, it's not in a negative way. People just don't have life experiences with all these types of things. So it's being able to be on the radar, talking about those issues and connecting with more people. To your point, Andrew has... When I ran last year, there was no issues. I was welcomed into the party, celebrated really too. It was exciting to have more diversity and have that. And I always I always joke about this. Uh, we had four uh, openly gay candidates. M- my friend David from Vancouver Centre, Ryan Lester in Toronto Centre, Michael Forian in downtown Montreal. And then the one that gets elected is the gay rural hillbilly from Eastern Ontario to be, the, to be the, <laughs> as they say, the face of the of the gay Tories. So, um, you know, they always got to laugh like Murphy's Law. But it, it's uh, that's one part of who I am. But I also think, you know, in Engaging in these conversations, the tone of what we have and the comfort to be able to talk about these issues in the year 2020, I think is important for us. So I think Aaron's uh, done a very good job starting off and talking about that. Uh, he supported, for example, uh, Randall's uh, Garrison's bill on uh, trans rights and the government's legislation as well and, and gets it as a lawyer that way too. So being able to work with a leader, I think Aaron kind of sees and knows what we need to do. And that fundamentally as a core, that's who he is. So for me, I was excited to get started as a member of parliament. 
moment. Wasn't sure we were going to have a leadership race or what it was when I started uh, in Ottawa. But now with Aaron at the helm, I'm very comfortable. And I think it's been a, it, we've got a, we're doing the right things we need to do, I think, to be opening up more eyes and ears and people taking a second look at our party, which frankly, if we're going to get to your side of the aisle, Nate, that's what we're going to need to do. That's that's the conversations and the realities we have to face. This issue of equal rights has, in some cases, been used as a great divide as between liberal and conservative parties in recent years. And I, I do hope that we get past this, you know, simple things, conservative leaders marching in pride parades. But more than that, that we all stand in lockstep to defend equal rights for people of different sexual orientation, tra- transgender people. I mean, we, we need to make sure sure that this is not a political divide anymore and that we all stand united behind supporting rights. And I hope that C6 is indicative of that and that we can get through this where most of Parliament stands behind a bill like that and that we can continue and improve. I mean, the blood ban is a great example. I, I've had a number of conversations over the over the years with Canadian Blood Services, and unquestionably, we need to take a risk-based approach rather than a blanket exclusion approach. Other countries do it, and, and certainly I think Canada is capable of doing it as well. When it comes to modernizing the Conservative Party, equal rights has been one albatross perhaps as Peter McKay put it, but I I think climate action would be another area where I would point to at least in East End of Toronto, where I have progressive conservative-minded people who look to conservative policies and say, look, I care about science and I care about climate and I'm mainly conservative, but if they don't catch up on this issue, they don't have my vote. Is that an area where you would want to see the Conservative Party catch up as well? The line that I've, I've come to use, Dennis Matthews, the good friend who used to work in uh, in the Prime Minister's office, and I, he's in the Toronto area now. I have to get, I have to pay him copyright on this, I feel, after a while, <laughs> but it is being um, fiscally responsible, fiscally conservative, responsible, and socially relevant. And uh, socially relevant on social issues, understanding, and being able and being comfortable talking about those issues. And the one thing I've said to different colleagues colleagues and even constituents when I have those conversations, we will ban conversion therapy. That will be happening. Many provinces have already done that. And I saw that Yukon is the first territory to undertake the same thing as well. These issues and our need to keep updating our legislation, adding legislation and responding to changes in our society is not going away anytime soon. And you mentioned the blood ban is a perfect one as well. That's another tangible LGBT issue uh, file that we need to address and make progress on and end the stigma against gay men. So these things aren't going away anytime soon that way. So we talk about our modernization that way. Yeah, there's the uh, environmental platform uh, in it. I think it's the way too that we approach platform platform and looking at those things as well. You know, you've, you've seen some of Aaron's opening speeches. I also think when we talk about the economic aspect as well, it's diversifying and looking at our message. GDP growth is one thing. And I love this line, GDP growth is good when you see it growing, but wages and the individual aspects have to grow along with that. The middle class and the everyday person has to see that growth and that success as well. So looking at what we measure and how we measure it and what we deem as economic success and growth has to be different as well in how we look at that lens. And I'm a huge nerd uh, on on politics, obviously, Canadian, US, and also UK politics. And I follow with interest what Boris Johnson has done in in the UK, where again, they made huge gains uh, in this last election they had last year, but had for several years when they look at their economic arguments, when they look at being socially relevant, it was a conservative government there that actually took the lead in passing marriage equality in the UK. It wasn't perfect, but it was still conservative-led. And now Boris has given a commitment as well. The conservative government will be legislating and banning conversion therapy as well. It's in its early stages. So 
watching with interest what other like-minded Westminster parties do has been, you know, what I've been looking at too as an example of where we need to go and how we can do it. And that might be a perfect example, actually, in some respects, where you have Prime Minister Boris Johnson invest in active transportation, but you also then have a conservative party over a number of years take significant measures to tackle climate change. And the UK is well ahead of where we are in many respects. And it's not really a partisan issue where you worry if a conservative government gets in there versus a Labour government versus a a Liberal Dem government, they're going to have very different views on climate. The ambition might be different in some respects, but they are all united in needing to tackle climate change and in moving the needle in a significant way. And that probably is a lesson in some respects. And it probably doesn't play well in all parts of Canada in terms of where conservatives are elected. But I think there probably is a lesson there in terms of relevance and modernizing the party in looking to that experience in the UK. Absolutely. And and I think climate change, that was David Cameron that had the lead on that. And that was discussing that over over a decade ago. And again, how the balance and how they can do that of wanting to address climate change and where the debate or discussion happens is not whether it's how to proceed and how to make uh, environmental improvements. And the debates were on what type of system some tax credits, incentives for green, how that was all done. That was the debate in the country, which I think uh, served them. And the one thing I think too goes is the UK uh, is an example. And, and Labour is an example of this. Lib Dems don't have as many seats, but the Conservatives, the diversity they've got, the number of young people under the age of 30, that got elected last year. And I, I've been trying to connect with them as some next-gen Conservatives and having some great Zoom calls of what it's had to be. And then they have in their party, the, the United Kingdom Conservative Party has 20 openly gay. I think they're actually at 21 now. Uh, somebody must have come out recently, but 21, 21 openly gay conservative members of parliament. And they've been having, uh, you know, their first member was decades ago. So again, that diversity that they have and that wider range of, of life experience and perspectives, that's definitely benefited them and look where they are now. So uh, I've teased some of them. I built a, a great working relationship talking on some files. I'm like, send some gay conservatives over here to help me out, please. It'd be great. But uh, it just shows you the, the where the future is going in the direction that we're going to be going into. I've gotten to know Nigel Evans, actually, at different international events. And there is clearly a greater space in, or there has been a greater space, I should say, in their parliament for an, uh, for a long period of time. For sure. And actually, the one, um, Elliot Colburn and his uh, partner, uh, fiance, Jed Dwight, have been become good friends. We chat back and forth and we've Zoomed uh, a couple of times and connect on things. And it was just, I, I follow, obviously, both of them on social media. And Elliot was up in the House of Commons today as they're battling a second wave of COVID. And one of the challenges they have is the hospitality, wedding industry, convention space. And there was Elliot standing up in Westminster in in London, speaking about how he had to delay, him and Jed had to delay their wedding, which was supposed to be this year to next year and talking firsthand experience of the challenges of wedding planning in the hospitality industry. And I just thought like, isn't that amazing that that's, you know, uh, in today's day and age, a conservative MP talking about he and his husband getting married and the challenges there. It just shows how, how far they've come and you know, gives uh, something to look forward to. So climate action, I mentioned, obviously, you have been helping to lead the way as a matter of equal rights. Are there other areas where you think we could bridge the divide in some ways? I think of an issue like, say, the opioid crisis, where thousands of Canadians from all sorts of political backgrounds and different communities have been affected, where it used to be more conservative politics, maybe to take a tough on crime and harm reduction isn't where we want to we want to go. But I've heard Todd Doherty speak in in the House very passionately on this issue. I've seen other conservatives really change their views in a hurry post-insight and post the battle at the Supreme Court. Do you see that as an issue where 
on drug policy, maybe the Conservative Party shifts its its views where we maybe should treat drug use as a health issue, and, and there's space for that as well? I, I think at yeah, mental health, uh, I think uh, drug and addictions issues, mental health issues, I think criminal justice is something as well that I think there's an interest in taking a look at that and, and having some of those conversations there. One issue that I that's always been a, a passion of mine personally is on adoption. And I think this goes from uh, where you talk about a unity of parties, the issue of adoption. And to me, where I have friends that I know of that have adopted children overseas, which is fantastic, but our adoption process here from our foster system to adoption and the encouragement of that, we've made some progress over the years. But I really think when you talk about family, even somebody that's pro-life, I think having a stronger adoption system, you can bring people from all over the political spectrum together on this to say, we can do better. I talk to friends, I talk to family constituents. I really feel like we can do better on adoption. And regardless of political background, yeah, we we need to improve that process. We obviously have to have a safety net in there, but the encouragement of it and that process, it is such a winning issue from all perspectives. There are a lot. Minority governments, you know what it's like in in Ottawa, especially in these COVID times now too, and, and the recovery and the focus focus going to be on uh, on economic recovery and then uh, health directly our health system long term care being a priority it's just getting these things on the radar and keeping them on the front burner sometimes uh, because unfortunately we have such a short attention span on issues and that that's through a media cycle that's through a parliamentary cycle all these types of things it's a real challenge regardless of what party you come from to take an issue that's a passion of yours and move the ball forward on stuff and keep it on the front burner get a bill passed and i remember watching a movie it was, it was a long while ago, I'm going to say back in my high school days or university days, and it's so true about legislation or a priority. And it actually was about the U.S. congressional system, which I'll take our Canadian system over the U.S. one any day of the week. But like, say you have a passion on a bill that you wanted to bring forward, it's a private member's bill. You've got to draft it. You've got to get it through your caucus, generally build, generally build caucus support. It's a natural template for a PMB. Then you have second reading. Then you've got committee. Then you've got third reading. And then you've got that exact same process with the Senate. You have to successfully pass every single one. Well, you've got to run the sheet and go undefeated in every stage. All it takes is one hiccup, one break in that, and the whole thing's over. And so the process, it goes through scrutiny when we get bills, but I think it speaks volumes about the challenges we have to keep issues on the radar and actually pass things and get them done, particularly private members' bills. There's going to be a lot that are left on the table that we're not even going to get to debate or vote on or see to come to a conclusion. Especially in this minority parliament, and I ask about the opioid crisis in part, uh, the private members' bill that I'll move forward with shortly, it'll be in early December that we ultimately have the first hour of debate, but is on treating drug use more as a health issue than a criminal justice issue and addressing the stigma because we know so many people are losing their lives and public health experts are calling for action. But for you, I mean, being openly gay and a conservative MP has led you to be a voice on these issues in a serious way. And I'm glad that you are. But when you look to whether it's your own private members bill or other issues that you say, I got elected and I'm going to try and drive these issues home. Are there other issues that you would point to just personally to say, these are issues that I'm, I'm going to carry through my elected career? So I have what I call like policy ADD, where there's so many, you know, I, I have my PMB <laughs> coming up. I think I'm number 47 or something. So I got a, a decent number and I'm the next replenishment. And I've narrowed it down to like five ideas that I've got. I'm going to likely table draft and table them all and, you know, whittling them down. So, you know, obviously from a personal perspective, I didn't come in an 
on all honesty, I didn't come in as a member of parliament expecting to have the LGBT lens on that I do, but I, I've embraced it. It's been a good thing, I think, for our party and I hope our parliament as we go through on things. But uh, some of the other ones, uh, you know, agritourism is big in my riding that way, sustainable agriculture and some of the best practices. We have a huge farming community in my riding. And so looking at some of those things from an environmental climate change perspective and how we can do them growing the industry without burdens and and those aspects. So those have been important. I'm, I'm into the weeds. I love the House and Procedural Affairs Committee. So um, some of the issues along there, ethics, uh, conflict of interest rules and those types of things that may not be the sexiest things. But yeah, everybody comes to the table with their wide variety. I probably have the most random, unique ones. But um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I ask in part because where there are ways of working across the aisle, I always find where you can reach some agreement with members of parliament and build a coalition of members of parliament from different parties. It's much easier to jump those hurdles that you're describing, legislative barriers or just getting it on the government's agenda, frankly, uh, without the government perceiving it to be a, a political challenge. And so where there are areas that you plan to work on, I would say, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. And I, I'm very interested in working across the aisle where, where it makes sense to do so. Awesome. Well, no, that is great. And I, I've been uh, actually, we're just starting private members legislations and debates now. And there's two um, bills that have come forward from, from our side that have been great, where one was Len Weber, who's been dealing with organ donation. Yeah, Len's great. I seconded that in the last part and I'll do it again. Awesome. Yeah, well, and I'm going to be doing, uh, and he, he's got it up and, and been supporting that as well. But it was working across the aisle, going back, okay, how can we get to yes in this? We're in the, the dialogue and exchange of that second reading was really good. The other one that just came up was Matt Janaru's, um Compassionate Care Leave, where we have uh, Compassionate Care Leave for somebody to look after as a caregiver, uh, a terminally ill family member. But once that family member passes away, the return to work is very quick. So looking at that bereavement leave aspect, so Bill C-220 is up right now, and it was Anthony Housefather from uh, from the Liberal Caucus that stood up, supportive of the bill, really appreciating working with Matt. Let's work with the department. Let's see if we can get this done. And there was good support from all sides. So I agree. Is that when I bring mine forward, my intention for as long as I'm in Ottawa, however long uh, I have the honor of being there, is when it comes to private members' bills, is it doing exactly that, reaching across the aisle to say, hey, is this something you'd be interested in? Would you be a seconder? And would you help rally support within your caucus to do that? It stands a much better chance of doing that. And the other thing I say to colleagues is too, not every PMB is going to be like that and won't be, but where you can, it not only is it good legislation, you get better legislation when it's bipartisan, but also it stays and sticks as well. Uh, I think whenever, you know, you have a change in government, it's things aren't being repealed as much and those types of things. So to me, it speaks to the sustainability of your idea as well. The more parties that buy in, the more that get there, uh, the better chance it's got sticking around as, as law for, for a long time to come. I think that's exactly right. Not only we've gone through a pandemic this year, but you also somehow went through a leadership contest. Why Aaron O'Toole? Well, I've got to know Aaron since I've been come to Ottawa, but I knew him uh, when I was a candidate and actually when I was a staff member on the Hill. And I've always just been impressed by Aaron. I see a lot of my political ideology in Aaron, calm, cool, collected, uh, reasonable, pragmatic. And I, I think just a principled person that's in politics for the right reasons and is passionate about being compassionate and having that message. We talk about modernizing the party. We're a big tent party. We 
we have a lot of uh, tent poles in that party. Uh, so holding that tent up is something, but growing it is is really good as well. So every conversation I've had with him is there's an intelligent thought behind it. There's, I think, a good lens that looks not only, you know, not just within our party, but within the broader country as well about where we're going on these things. So I think from both domestic and international policy, I just think he's got a great head and his shoulders. I think he's got a good vision and a leadership style that to me is encompassing. To me, it's energizing to me. You know, when I looked at, you know, different candidates, I had nothing against Peter McKay as an example. I knew Peter. I didn't know Derek or Leslin as much, but Peter I had respect for. But for Aaron, just what I look at is who do you, you know, who do you want to be prime minister? Who do you want to be your candidate for that? I just saw personally and then reflective in who he is, a lot of the same things that I uh, I try to embody in my my day-to-day work. Well, I certainly, I sat on committee with him and I always perceived him to be a worthy opponent. <laughs> I, I We were at a, a debate at the Churchill Society in the past election. It wasn't a big room or anything, but we have a good time going back and forth and 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 giving each other uh, <laughs> as hard a time as we can. And so when he won, I mean, I don't think Derek or Leslin were particularly serious people as far as it goes. I don't think they are particularly serious people, but Aaron certainly is a serious person. And so I think the party will be better off. Our democracy overall will be better off not having, you don't have to comment, but not having Andrew Scheer and having Aaron O'Toole as the leadership of, of the Conservative Party, I think is better overall. And I hope, I mean, it obviously is clearly when you talk about modernizing for equal rights and LGBTQ rights, but I hope for climate action, we'll see what the policy ultimately is in in the conservative platform. But I, I hope that things move forward in a serious way. I don't think I'm going to get what I want out of the Conservative Party on criminal justice, maybe, but I, I, you know, I do think it will move the, some of the difficult conversations we've had in recent years, I, I think will will go away. And, and that's for the good of everyone, I think. And, you know, uh, the, I use this line all the time. I think I've said it three times today already is uh, attitude's a small thing that makes a big difference. And the way I've tried, I, I, I got this from my municipal background. I had a wonderful council of five. We actually all got reelected. So we were together for eight years and we had a really good staff and council dynamic. We didn't agree on everything. What would be the point of having five people if that was the case? But there wasn't a night that I wouldn't leave the table that I, I wouldn't shake their hand or we couldn't have gone for a beer and wings afterwards. And right. I think the same thing of where uh, I've tried to build relationships in each party uh, where, yeah, we're not going to agree on everything, but there's going to be some things we're going to agree on. And most importantly, we disagree. We can have a, a great debate at the Churchill Society events or wherever it would be. And at the end of the day, you could shake hands and say that was a good engaged debate and uh, respect people on both sides. So that's what I've always tried to bring to the table. I hope it lasts. <laughs> it has so far one year in, but that's just, uh, I think, my municipal background that's kind of hopefully tagged along to my, my federal work. When you hear stories of how Parliament used to be, people tell stories along those lines. And my experience has not always been that way. And I think there is, we're not obviously the United States and, and we're not as hardened in our partisanship as that, mm-hmm. but there is a sense, and maybe it's certain characters like Pierre Paul Levin, Michelle Rempel, I don't know, that really grind my side. <laughs> or I, I do think partisanship has hardened more than it used to, that people don't have drinks together in the same way. And there isn't that cross-party talk in the same way. There, there's obviously some, and mm-hmm. committees in particular that people don't pay attention to oftentimes work in, in, a, in a fairly 
collegial kind of way. Not always, though. And, and so I, I do think it's important that especially younger members of Parliament hold on to that sentiment and try to build on that sentiment. For, no, for sure. And I, I'm, I'm smiling, kind of chuckling here, too, because I say, hey, you know, my, my grandma Lila has this line, my late grandmother, she said, it takes all kinds to make the world go around, you know, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and look at that in our caucus, we have the people like Michelle and Pierre that are very, uh, you know, hard in the attacking way. I look at, I look at the IFR. I tell my colleagues I like Michelle and my colleagues are like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, and so the, the funny ones I have to tease, I have to give a plug is Chris Biddle and Mark Gerritsen and Adam Vaughn, you know, or some of the ones that are quite... <laughs> But I've, you know, with uh, Chris, I don't know as much, but with Mark and Adam, I, I get along with them great, you know, where they yeah. do their thing and give their little jabs and we have it back. But, I, you know, we laugh about it and don't take ourselves too seriously that way, too. And everybody has, the, you know, different uh, we call it cast of characters for laughing, different personal, right, different right. personalities. Right. Uh, and so I think there's, you know, you're going to have all kinds of that in your caucus make up the block are the same way, the NDP, they're the same way too, that have a wide variety of personalities and styles that way too. And, and that's not unique to politics. You, we, if we worked in an office and we worked on the sixth floor of a building, we'd have the same thing. We'd have some type A personalities. We'd have some introverted people. We'd have some people that would cross and make friends where you wouldn't think. And you have some that couldn't stand each other. That The House of Commons <laughs> exactly. is every exactly. workplace in Canada, all, you know, on television every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I, I, I really appreciate you joining me. And I really don't hesitate to be in touch where you do pick one of those five issues and, and you want to reach out across the aisle. I'll do the same. And I hope to have a, a few more of these conversations in the years ahead. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. And I have to say, I don't know what's in the water in Beaches East York, but I've appreciated this conversation. And uh, one of my favorite Toronto City Councillors, Brad Bradford, I had, uh, we talked yes. about active transportation. Brad and I had breakfast on the Danforth a couple of months ago uh, before we got into a second wave unfortunately and he gave me a bike lane tour of uh, right from the Danforth all the way downtown to City Hall. I barely survived the six kilometers but uh, I uh, I think it's something great that we have some great uh, public servants in Beaches East York so I appreciate the chat. And Aaron O'Toole used to live in the Beach Triangle so it's a small it's a small world in Canadian politics. It's all making sense now. <laughs> <laughs> Take care Eric. Thanks Nate. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 